Welcome to Saints and Sinners Unplugged with your hosts, New York Times bestselling authors, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. I'm Casey Sherman, along with my partner in true crime writing, Dave Wedge. And uh, we've got a great show for you guys today because we've got a great guest. He's an Emmy Award winning actor. He's a musician. He's a bestselling author whose new book woke up this morning. The definitive oral history of the Sopranos is shooting up the charts. It's number one all over Amazon right now. It's a great read, and uh, we're really honored to have Michael Imperioli on the show. How you doing, Michael? I am great. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. You you at home in New York, Michael? I'm in New York, yeah. I'm uh, in the Upper West Side of New York. So how are you keeping it all together? Um, you know, the podcast Talking Sopranos was just, you know, like a rocket ship. It just uh, really, I think, tapped into what everybody loved about the show originally. And all of the new fans that the show generated because of your podcast and because of the movie, um, you know, The Many Saints of Newark, it's almost a revival of sorts of, to us, the greatest show that uh, was ever put on television. Yeah, it's been, you know, a soprano season, that's for sure, the last couple of months. You know, we did a book signing last week uh, on the day of the release in New Jersey. And we got there. Steve and I drove up from the city and drove into Jersey. We got there around 5. The event started, I think, at 7. And there was hundreds of people lined out outside of this bookstore around the corner and stuff. And, you know, we kind of looked at each other and were like, this is crazy. It's like the Beatles. You guys are rock stars. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> but they wanted signed copies of the book. And then a lot of people said uh, the podcast helped me get through the quarantine, which I, they, a bunch of people said that to us. You know, I mean, we, we haven't been out in public that much. Like it, we did a couple of these in conversation shows, but we haven't done meet and greets because of COVID and stuff. But this was really the first time we were really in one, you know, one on one kind of contact with fans and stuff. And, mm. and People really have appreciated, I think, the podcast just to take their mind out of all the kind of craziness of the last, you know, year and a half or two years. And, and talk a little bit about how you and Steven kind of came up with the concept. We weren't, we didn't really come up with it. We were approached by three different podcast producers towards the end of 2019. And they were like, you know, you guys, you know, we've done these events in conversation, live right. shows. So they know we've talked about the show and engaged with the fans together about the show. One of the producers was a friend of Steve's, and, and he presented a way for us to do it independently, uh, which we liked. This way we could really do whatever we wanted to do, because we didn't know what we were doing. So we thought that might be the best way to do it. Um, and literally, you know, uh, we turned on the cameras and, you know, the microphones, and we did not know what we I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to talk about The Sopranos for an hour or two hours, and turns out, we had a lot to say about it. And, that, you know, the show just reveals itself a lot, you know, if you really pay attention. I hadn't watched the show since it went off the air. And to give it this kind of objective attention really helped and, and, and was a, just a real fountain of material to talk about. Now, did you have to go back and uh, rewatch all 86 episodes before the podcast? I do it as we go. But we had to kind of front load it because the book was done we finished the book like early this year. So we had to watch all the episodes we were not going to have covered on the podcast so we could talk about them for the book. So, Michael, you, you've also you've, you've written a novel. Um, how was that process, uh, the process with this book, different from writing a novel? Oh, the novel is just a completely solitary, beautiful, horrific 
experience. <laughs> a special one and an intimate one that's you alone with your imagination and those characters. Very, very different. Uh, much more of a creative, artistic thing than a... This is really, there was, you know, compiling the best of interviews from the people and then writing some interstitial stuff and some introductory stuff and some um, connective tissue, which was fun, but it's related to the show. I mean, the, 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 the novel is just the world of my own imagination, which is a lot more, a lot more interesting. Not, not, to, not to diss the, the nonfiction book, it's just much more personal. Sure, and, and for those who don't know, let's give the title of that uh, book out. Uh, the novel is called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. And uh, um, when did that, when was that published, Michael? 2018. 2018. Uh, by Akashic Books, which is one of the great independent publishers ever. This book, you know, came through Steve. Steve's agent had the idea to write this, woke, woke up this morning, this book. So, you know, we kind of followed his lead. But I'm working on a second novel, and, and I hope to do it with Akashic again, because I just loved working with them. It's a great novel, and I think they really, uh, you know, the editing is crisp, and the storytelling is, is sublime. So we're looking forward to the next one. Getting back to Woke Up This Morning, I'd like to talk a little bit about your journey, you know, toward The Sopranos. We all... you came on our radar uh, in Goodfellas playing Spider and, uh, you know, mouthing off to uh, Joe Pesci's character as one of the iconic scenes in an already iconic movie. Was that something that the uh, creators, David Chase, etc., The Sopranos, took a look at and, and brought you in to uh, do a read? Oh, yeah. David Chase hired several people who were in Goodfellas. I mean, I don't think there'd be a Sopranos without Goodfellas. David was very much influenced by that movie in, in terms of how it portrayed the mob you know, in a very different way than like The Godfather did. I mean, if you, you know, the best mob movies are probably Godfather and Goodfellas, and, and they're very, very, very different. The Godfather is almost this mythic epic, and Goodfellas is much more, you know, in the street, you know, and and uh, raw and gritty. Well, it's about as real as you can get. You know, The Godfather to us is, is romanticism. I mean, it's a beautiful film on so many levels, but yeah. Goodfellas um, is, a you know, the, probably the first mob movie that, that I saw personally that I said, okay, they, they get it right, because these are this is exactly what these gangsters, you know, go through day to day. Dave and I have written mob books. We wrote Hunting Whitey about Whitey Bulger's life on the run. And prior to that, I wrote a book called Animal about the first guy placed in the witness protection program. And what I loved really about Goodfellas was the fucking stress that these mobsters are under every single minute of every single day. It's, you know, it's not all glory. You're looking over your shoulder at the feds. You're looking over your shoulder at your best friend who's got a gun to the back of your head. Um, the scene that you're in, again, in Goodfellas, talk a little bit about that. You've got two of the biggest heavyweights in Hollywood uh, in the room with you as you're acting. How did that scene unfold and what did you take away from it? Well, the day I showed up on set, I mean, I, I shot two days, one scene one day uh, and the second scene the second day. And Marty, you know, uh, I met him at the audition, but, you know, not, I didn't know him and he came up to me and he made me feel like I belonged there, you know, and I was, I'd only done three little things in movies. I was not very experienced at all in film, but he made me feel like I was an actor who belonged there and that part was mine. And he said, anything you need, anything questions, come to my trailer. And the act, the other actors, to their credit, really respected me and, and treated me like I was an actor, you know, and I belonged there. I was, uh, you know, and... The scenes were um, all improvised. The only line that was uh, in the script was the last thing that he says, which is, go fuck yourself, Tommy. But everything else was improvised and different every take, which, again, is uh, 
a real testament to Mar- uh, testament to Marty Scorsese to really trust actors, even someone so young and new, to film, to trust them that much. What? Where's my fucking drink? I asked you for a drink. You, you wanted a drink. I just asked you for a fucking drink. No, I thought I thought you said that you were all right, Spider. No, 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 no. What do you got me on a fucking pay no mind list, kid? No, because no, I heard. I thought I heard someone say some spider spider. I spider, thought, I thought spider. it was Henry. You know, you know, fucking mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that? No, I thought you said it was. I was all right, Spider. So you, no, you ain't all right, Spider. You got a lot of fucking problems. No, I thought you said you were all right, Spider. I'm, I am all right. You ain't all right. You little fucking prick. I thought I thought I am. I tell you, uh, you said, you've been doing this all I fucking night to me, you motherfucker. You want a drink now? Okay, I'll bring it. Yeah, me. well, give me a fucking drink. Move it, you little prick. You walk like fucking stepping fetches. <laughs> the line there, you know, I, I thought you said I was all right, Spider. No, no, I, I, you're not all right, Spider. That, that was, that all, was improvised. all improvised, huh? Yeah. How many takes are we talking there, Michael? Um, not that many. I, I mean, it's a long time ago, so I can't remember specifically. But it wasn't like all day. You guys were just all day back and forth. Oh no, no, we rehearsed in the morning took it easy and you know he works at a pretty leisurely pace very different than television and yeah. very different than most films he doesn't like stress he doesn't like people yelling let's go let's go hurry uh-huh. he doesn't like any of that shit easy relaxed let's yeah. let's you know make it right let's take our time which is lovely after you get shot the line where he says i you know he says you killed the guy he said, what do you good shot you know was that improvised as well there was nothing scripted for the scene wow Marty said for the first scene, he goes, all right, so just bring Henry the drink, Henry a drink, and let's see what happens. That's like <laughs> how the scene started. So right. I bring Henry the drink, and then Tommy's mad that I didn't bring him a drink. <laughs> and I'm just responding. You know, and um, oddly enough, I wasn't really nervous. You know, I, I, as a performer, I really like when the stakes are high. Um, I kind of feed off that. Mm. And for me, at that moment, at that time in my life, my career, the stakes could not have been any higher. Italian American, New York kid who wants to be an actor. Those, you know, De Niro and Scorsese are like pretty much, you yeah. know, yeah. you know, it's like Mantle and Maris or something. So you, it's like you're you're coming into Yankee Stadium in the World Series. That's what it was like. Add Pesci to the mix. You've got three of the guys that that built Raging Bull, arguably the greatest movie of all time. Sure. So so sure. you're in there with the heavyweights, like you said. You're in there with Mantle and Maris and um, you know Babe Ruth, if you will. You shoot for a couple of days. And then you watch the film and all of that connective tissue, like you said earlier, comes into play. What were your uh, thoughts when you uh, saw the movie on the big screen? I saw it at like a, not at the premiere. I wasn't invited to the premiere, (laughs) but there was a cast and crew kind of family screening that I I did go to. Um, I was kind of, because you don't know if it's even going to make the movie, you know, a lot of shit. I had done before then gets cut out. And I, I, the for a very first movie I did, I had one line that got cut out of the movie. So I was kind of shocked that it was placed. Those scenes are like right in the middle of the movie. And it's kind of the turn of the movie where it goes from kind of being like fun and kind of kooky to like really dark and sick. Like mm-hmm. that moment is really the turning point where Henry's like, this is psychotic. This is not just, you know, cowboys and Indians. And, and it was really surprising. And that 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 movie grew over the years in, in its stature, I think, in cinema yeah, history yeah. too. Can I just ask quickly, Michael, what what was your personal life like at that time when when you went in there to film that scene? Uh, I was living in Greenwich Village uh, with a girlfriend. I had been studying acting by then about six years. I was still studying at that time. I had done theater. Uh, I started producing theater around then and directing theater. Just had gotten an agent and it, it had been a year since I started film. But I had tried to get work for many years since I was like 
for about six years. A lot of it to no avail. But I was pretty much um, working in uh, I was working in a restaurant. That's how I would like you know sup, you know make a living. But basically, my life was about trying to be an actor. Mm. That's pretty much all I did. I barely ever left the city, and really didn't have I didn't have any hobby. I still don't really have hobbies. I just, <laughs> uh, just was all in, which is what I tell people that it takes if you really want to do this. It's like either you make it your life or you don't. And if you yeah. do, there's a chance you'll, you know. Yeah, you can't half-ass it. You got to you got to go all. No, in. no, no, no. Sopranos becomes a bit of a springboard, or I'm sorry, Goodfellas becomes a bit of a springboard toward the Sopranos. You are invited to audition. It's a guy, David Chase, uh, who I, I think you didn't even know who he was before you Not got the all. call. Not at all. And, I had no idea who he was. And when you read the pilot script, what did you think? Um, I wasn't, sh- I, I couldn't put my finger on what it was um, because I thought it was it a spoof? Because it was it was a lot of comedy in it, in a different way than Goodfellas had comedy. There was a, there was a certain clever writerly comedy. Goodfellas comedy really comes out of the personalities and situations. And um, I wasn't sure, you know. It's like it's hard to if you just read the pilot, don't know anything else about the show. It's really hard to get a kind of context of what it was. There was no series on cable. Yep. And I actually had done one cable thing. That sucked that I don't even know if it aired. So I didn't have a lot of faith in cable as a, as a, as a medium for TV series. But I liked the character. And I liked the people that they were talking about uh, for the cast. The combination of those things really made me want to do it. Now, I remember when uh, the, the show was announced on HBO, and to your point, you know, I, I think the audience didn't know what it was going to be from from Jump, because a, a movie had just come out, analyzed this with De Niro and Billy Crystal, exactly. and that was about a mobster who, uh, you know, went to a psychiatrist, so you don't know if they're playing it, you know, totally for laughs with this, you know, relative unknown at the time, James Gandolfini, but I think, you know, obviously, you know, like Goodfellow Soprano, it, you know, you start with a with a core audience, and then you just build it from there. And it was really one of those great word of mouth experiences uh, that people were talking about at their you know so called water cooler every Monday. Hey, you got to watch this show. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, and, and it wasn't really till we got greenlit for a, for a season. So we shoot the pilot a year later. We come back to the rest of season one. But and that's when I realized when I started seeing the next scripts every two weeks, I was like, oh my God, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. This is, you know, just incredible. This is the best thing I've ever done. Mm. When season one wrapped, I was like, we've just made something really great. Whether or not anyone's going to want to watch it or like it is a whole other story. You know? Right, right. And I think, um, you know, go, going back to your first day on set, one of, one of the interesting things that I noted in your book is uh, uh, what people don't realize is that you almost killed a star on your first day on set. T- tell that story. Jesus. <laughs> uh, so... Christopher, the character that I auditioned for, basically his job in the beginning, at least, of the of the show was to be Tony Soprano's driver. But I didn't have a driver's license and I neglected to tell anybody that because I wanted the job, of course. <laughs> and I figured how hard could it be to drive on TV because you're not really driving, are you? Right. Uh, we were. Um, and I had to back down the sidewalk with trees on both sides of the car with extras running out of the way and delivering dialogue looking forward 
and talking to James Gandolfini, which is hard to do even, I would imagine, now for me, and I drive now. <laughs> and I did it like four or five times, and the director said, do it again twice as far, twice as fast. And I did it, and I slammed into a tree, crushed the rear end of the car, airbags pop, smoke, Jim's head goes back, people start running, and there's this really horrible silence, and I'm thinking, he's going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> They're going to fire me. And then all of a sudden, he starts hysterically laughing. This is like the first day of work. I, I didn't really know him. I think we went to the read-through or something. And he just laughs. Jim kind of liked when the wheels fell off like of things. Like he, he found that very comical when in this very you know intense, very professional environment, like things just fall apart in a very comedic way. And we were friends ever since. You know? Now, now, how did uh, Gandolfini get on David Chase's radar? I know in the book you mentioned a few other uh, uh, potential Tonys, uh, Stevie Van Zandt. I think you know, that's yeah. a story that's been out there for a long time. But there were other actors that were up for the big role of Tony Soprano. Michael Rispoli, who played Jackie April yep. in the season one. As Michael Rispoli, Stephen Van Zandt, and Jim were the finalists when we tested in L.A. for the network. We were all in the waiting room together, as was Lorraine and Edie. We all made it onto the show. I mean, Jim, a lot of us were kind of in similar places in our career, like Edie, myself, Jim. Lorraine was the only one who really had, a, you know, had made her name. Like, she was nominated for an Oscar for Goodfellas. But, you know, we had done film. We had done a lot of indie film. We had done theater. And people were starting to take notice here and there. And, and Jim, you know, was in True Romance. And, you know, people really liked what he did there. And a couple Get other shorty. films. Great. Um, yeah. And he had been on Broadway by then. True Romance is such a classic. Um, he was so good in that. Yeah. But, you know, when a really great actor meets a really great role, something special happens, yeah. you know. Because you could have the greatest actor, like Gandolfini or, or Brando or someone, and if the role is, like, mediocre, the, the genius doesn't get a chance to really, you know, take take center stage, take light, you know, take hold, you know what I mean? To us, it was a perfect marriage of uh, uh, material and talent. Exactly. From what I also pulled from your book was that uh, Lorraine Bracco, as you mentioned, she's kind of the, you know, the big star at that time, just coming off Goodfellas. And she was offered the role of Carmela first, right? She was offered Carmela and turn it down because she said she had already done the mob wife and of course in Goodfellas. And she said, I want to play Dr. Melfi, which was a, you know, gutsy move. One of the greatest episodes that uh, in Sopranos history and is Pine Barrens. And that was written by a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Terry Winter. Uh, Terry Winter, uh, Dave and I got together to adapt our book, Hunting Whitey, which is a, a project that is still in development. But uh, but Terry, you know, is just a really unique guy. And when we talked to Terry about The Sopranos, when he, you know, he always talks about the humor in the shows. And it's subtle humor. It's, you know, uh, Tony Soprano reading the back of a, a, of a cereal box uh, that elicits a laugh, in the, you know, to, to the live audience when you guys were debuting some of these some of these episodes um but you know what, what's it like to work with you know incredible writers incredible actors i mean it, it just seems like it's the perfect uh scenario for you that's the perfect scenario yeah working with good people i mean the sopranos you know had just a tremendous cast great writers great directors but it also had a little bit of magic to it that you can't you know you can put together the best team on paper and still it doesn't come off somehow, you know, it's, or it's good, but it just doesn't become great. And the Sopranos had, you know, was touched by something 
a little bit magical, you know, um, chemistry wise. Why is Tony Sirico, you know, why is Paulie Wallace and Christopher lost in the woods? Why is that dynamic funny? I don't know. I can't really put my finger on why the two of them together made that funny. This is no fucking joke here. I gotta lose a foot. It's numb, huh? The fuck you think? If this guy's not dead, Paulie. He's fucking dead. I know, but 16 Czechoslovakians, he's trained for this shit. It's like diehard shit. I'm working on a plan. Give me your shoes. I can go get help. Fuck you. You're not leaving me here. You don't trust me? It's stupid. Pitch dark out there. And what's your fucking plan? Eat catch your pets? We should have stopped the Roy Rogers. And I should have fucked the Elevens, but I didn't. The two of them together somehow may is weird and funny you know with those guys being fish out of water is sure. always funny because they're so kind of idiosyncratic and you know masters of their own domain but you take them out of that and they're very uncomfortable and very you know they can get pretty uh desperate you know the sopranos was as funny as anything on tv but you know it's not a comedy like I, i'm doing a, the next show i'm doing <clears throat> is a half hour comedy i told somebody that they're like oh you do comedy and i said you know, I'm not a comedian. I don't do jokes. Yeah. But The Sopranos is more as as much a comedy as it is a drama. Mm. I, I don't do punchlines and jokes. But if this if the writing and scenario is comedic and you commit to it, it's going to be funny. It's not. I don't have to be a clown and like I don't make funny faces and funny noises and and you know what I mean and and punchlines. It's just playing the the truth of the situation. Mm. If it if it's absurd and funny, <laughs> you know, people are going to laugh. Well, speaking of that, you know, one of the greatest uh, Christopher moments in The Sopranos is when you uh, or Christopher attacks Lauren Bacall. Well, Miss Bacall, your limo is second in line there. Oh, well, I could take it from here. You sure? Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. okay. You're welcome. Good night. Good night. Get the fuck away from me. What are you doing? Somebody help us! Those guys! Don't move. Yes, an ambulance by Robinson's May. To me, that was just something that uh, I didn't see coming, but was such a such a great moment. You've got, you know, Bogey's wife uh, on set with you and uh, Christopher is uh, shaking her down. Uh, talk a little bit about working with her. Uh, she seems like a real hot shit. Jeez, she was the best. I actually knew her. I had a girlfriend uh, in the 90s who was in a movie that Robert Altman directed called Ready to Wear, which was shot oh, yeah. in Paris. And she was in it. And, and a lot of the cast hung out, went to dinner. And I got to, I had dinner with her a couple of times. So we already had that common ground, which was really nice and trust. And, um, you know, the fact that she was game to do that yeah. blew my mind. She also liked to curse. <laughs> a blue streak and just loved it and she does on the sopranos which she she loved doing she was just so game and just like yeah let's do it you know what i mean and and gutsy just as you'd hope she'd be you know oh, exactly. and unpretentious it's those moments when you're sitting there where you just have to you kind of you're engaged and in the moment and then you step out and going like i'm sitting with lauren bacall Hollywood royalty. You know, it's you kind of pinch yourself. I do. I mean, because I'm a fanboy at heart, really. And I, you know, my my heroes are mean a lot to me. Going from the, the you know, those comedic moments to the real, you know, gritty and compelling moments in the show. You know, a few that stand out to me personally, obviously, uh, Adriana's uh, death and demise. 
what was your reaction? You spent so much time with her uh, on on the set prior to that uh, because of the relationship between the characters, and then you watch Silvio Dante, you know, chase her up that or up or down that hill. It just, uh, I mean, it was a gut punch to the audience for sure. Yeah, I mean, listen, as a viewer, it was you know really poignant, really great television. As someone, uh, as a cast member, it's like the, the, the rough thing is that you know you're not going to be working with her all the time anymore. Yeah. That's really what, you know, uh, the takeaway is for me. You know, when these actors would get killed off, it's like, oh, we're not going to see each other. And when we watched the finale together, that's what, as the finale went on, because we watched it all together, as it aired, like everybody else did, that Sunday night at 9 o'clock, you know, it just started to dawn on me that this part of my life was over. I'm not going to be with these people all the time anymore. That even touched me more than like what's happening on the screen, obviously. Now, when you had that moment uh, with your own character and uh, and Gand- uh, James Gandolfini, what was that like? Did you guys prepare together? Was it a, a somber moment, like you said, a poignant moment um, because you wouldn't be you know acting together anymore in that series? You know, oddly enough, it wasn't because I that wasn't my last day of work. I still had other scenes to do because, you, you know, we shot out a sequence. So, you know, that was like in some weird way, like a, just another scene. That day for me was all about the stuntman who flipped the car and went down the hill because there was a guy in the car who actually did that and oh, rolled wow. that truck down the fucking hill like and flipped it like four times. I mean, it was one of the. I one of the greatest, most scariest stunts I've ever seen in you know my whole career. This day's a gift. Every time I look at my kid, that's what I realize. That shit with Junior, please. Just that people like Phil, they're not on that page. Take those roses and stick them up your ass. Stones first. You know, the, it wasn't as final as you'd think, you know, because I added like two more weeks left of work. So I wasn't I wasn't ready. To, my last day was actually a very kind of inconsequential scene with Tony and Phil Leotardo on this the waterfront or something. Just just a little bit of dialogue between them. I don't think I even said anything. That was my last day. A lot of our audience comes from the Boston area because uh, Dave and I write out of Boston. You know, there's a nice Boston connection to the Sopranos as well. Um, Marianne Leone is a is a friend of ours, great author. She played your uh, your mom on the Sopranos. Yeah, um, we love her. yeah uh, you know Frank Vincent, John Fiore, a lot of those guys. You know, kind of cut their teeth in the in the in the Boston market in the Boston area, and uh, so we feel uh, you know a little ownership uh, you know to the series as well as I'm sure everybody in New Jersey does. Too. Yeah, and Frank Renz- Frank Renzulli, who uh, right. was one of the main writers in the beginning of the show, grew up around some mob mobsters in Boston, and and brought some of those stories that were you know he experienced firsthand. He he says he was like my character in Goodfellas. That was like his. Th- he was like that when he was a teenager, running errands and you know card games and stuff like that, and he. He's on the new episode of the podcast, and uh, it's it's a really 
it's a really cool interview if you haven't listened to it yet. And, and that's, a, again, a, another great plug for Talking Sopranos. Um, talk a little bit about some of the guests that you have had on. And I know that, you know, you learn a little bit um, when you're hosting your own podcast. I think Alec Baldwin, who unfortunately has been in the news over the past four weeks, but when he was on your show, he, t- he I think he told you guys that he was approached to uh, play a character in the in the show, correct? He approached. Uh, he really oh, wanted yeah, to be okay. on the show. He wanted to be the guy to kill Tony Soprano. Oh, really? <laughs> well, him and Jim were pals. They'd done Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway with Jessica Lange and Aida Tuturo. Wow. Um, and, and Jim and Alec were were friends. You know, they they really liked each other. So and um, and I knew I, I actually Alec was in my acting class at one point when I was young. So I I knew him a bit, not as well as Jim. So he was you know a friend a friend of the family uh, without a doubt. And Alec did the DVD commentary, uh, interviewed David Chase, and I think maybe Terry on the when the DVDs came out. So he was like kind of an honorary soprano. His brother was on the show, Daniel, obviously mm-hmm. played himself. But yeah, we've had, you know, we've had most of the cast, we've had, you know, we devoted an entire episode, we didn't even break down an episode just to David Chase's first interview, which was like an hour and a half with David, which was really fascinating, you know, because I asked him, I said, what were you trying to do with The Sopranos? And he said, I wanted to make television that I wanted to watch. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, "Um, I want to do something with Italian-Americans, and I want to do something where people talk the way they do in life because in life people don't say what they mean and on television people are saying things so the audience can follow the story more than just trying to represent authentic human behavior and that was really important to him it was that was a really great interview ricky gervais uh came on ricky gervais was a really big fan of the sopranos and when he he came to new york when he was working on extras he had a deal with hbo and he asked if he could go to the soprano set (laughs) And they said, well, uh, you know, they, they call, I said, well, I'm a really cute. I was a huge office fan, a British one. I said, have him come, please. I'll show him around. And he didn't. And we became friends and went out to dinner that night. And uh, so he came on the podcast as a really great interview about how the Sopranos inspired him as a writer and as a performer and, and, you know, in television and, and just about, you know, comedy and his approach to it and his thoughts on it. It's a really one of my favorite interviews. But it's, uh, you know, we've pretty much had everybody who had anything to do with the show. You know? And speaking of The Office, you uh, were on the American version as uh, Dwight Sensei. Uh, they, they looked, uh, they Googled actors who have black belts, and I was on that list, so they called me up and asked if I wanted to do it. <laughs> so uh, that's a reveal to me. What uh, what discipline do you study? Taekwondo. Taekwondo. And how long have you been studying Taekwondo? Twenty years. Yeah, I studied as a as a young man, and uh, you know my hero growing up was Bruce Lee. So I would uh, get on a bus and sneak into oh, the combat yeah. zone in Boston in the 1980s and just watch. You know, if I was lucky, I got to catch Enter the Dragon. If I wasn't, I got to see you know chop socky schlock on screen. But you know those moments with with Bruce Lee on the big screen were uh, golden. Phenomenal. We, my wife and I train every day, every morning. And it's part of your spirituality as well. What you know, maybe some people don't realize that you, you're a Buddhist. You've been studying Buddhism for you know decades. Uh, talk a little bit about your spiritual journey. Honestly, I think that it started really with martial arts in a way because um, uh, I, I I got into Taekwondo before meditation or, or or even Buddhism. But 
You know, the, the best martial artists I know are some of the most non-aggressive people that I know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And chill and present and kind of gentle. Uh, but they're deadly. Yeah, <laughs> um, and they have respect for themselves and they have respect for other people. And there's a humility to martial arts that really impressed me a lot right from the beginning. And a, and a physical discipline and, and, and really good for your mind. At the end of The Sopranos, listen, I spent all, pretty much most of my adult life up to The Sopranos trying to be a successful actor. I didn't want to just be an actor. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be famous. I mm -hmm. wanted people to know. I wanted to work with the best people. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. And then finally it happened, you know, with The Sopranos, you know, something that had huge success that was really high quality, um, made money, you know, got notoriety and all that stuff. And yet still... And I had a good life. I had a great family, friends, you know. Yet still there was something. I still had, I had a lot of bad habits and a lot of, you know, destructive emotions and things like that. And um, started exploring a bunch of different spiritual disciplines, some very weird ones, um, and eventually landed on Buddhism. Both my wife and I just stuck with it from well, 2007. And it's something that just became a bigger and bigger part of our life, more Buddhism than med meditation is a part of Buddhist practice. So it's 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 much more about the teachings than it is just about meditation. Although meditation is a you know very 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 important component of it. So Michael, you know, along those lines, uh, another project that we're we're involved in with you is is uh, this podcast that we're developing on Jack Kerouac and. Uh, when we first connected about that, you had talked to me a little bit about your spirituality and your Buddhism and how some of that's rooted in your, you know, your connection to Jack Kerouac and the Beat Generation. Can you talk a little bit about what yeah. sort of an influence Jack Kerouac's work has had on your life? Well, I discovered Jack Kerouac through my friend Tom Gilroy, who's an indie film, a great independent filmmaker. He did Spring Forward with Leah Shriver and Ned Beatty and The Cold Lands, and he, he has a new movie he's working on now. But we started out in acting school. We started a theater company together. He, I was 17, so I was young, and I wasn't in college. I was just taking acting classes, and he had just came from Boston College, uh, and he was a very you know, knew a lot about music and literature and turned me on to a lot of the things that became really important. The Beats, one of them, Jack Kerouac, especially. Mm -hmm. And there was something that just spoke to me right away in Jack's writing. Now, I think Jack Kerouac is one of the most misunderstood, underrated writers of the 20th century. Because on the road, which a lot of people interpret as like, you know, just like, let it all hang out and just do whatever you want and this kind of thing of liberation. It's much more about, to me, an internal transformation about developing understanding and compassion for fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what Jack, all the Jack's work is about, which is a very Buddhist concept, of course. So the, I started reading a lot of Jack and I realized he was a Buddhist and I bought the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the teachings of the Buddha himself, right? Uh -huh. And uh, I bought it at St. Mark's Bookshop. I think it was 18. And I, I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. I just couldn't. I actually still have that copy of it. So I think that seed was planted by Jack. You know, uh -huh. it was there. You know, in Buddhism, you, you really talk about karmic connections. They don't talk about coincidence, but auspicious kind of intersections in your life. And, the, the, you know, 
there, and here we are now talking about doing a podcast right. about those right. later. Right. So there's no, I don't see those as coincidences. They're, they're important kind of crossroads in yeah, your life. I would agree. And, uh, you know, we're super excited to, to be developing this with you. And we, Me you know, too. we knew right away that, you know, you were, you were the voice for this, given your, you know, your whole vibe and your experience and, and your knowledge of the topic. If we could shift gears for a second, um, you know, the one of the first times I, I saw you outside of on TV was down in the village. I saw your band playing. You've got some new music. You're, you're, you're headed on tour. Can you talk a little bit about your passion for music and your band, Zopa, and, and what you guys are up to? We started playing in 2000. Actually, we started playing in 2006, so that's probably okay, when so you that's probably one, yeah. first show. Um, we got together then. I'd been in other bands in the, in the 80s and 90s but <clears> in New York, but um, we played a, a you know, shitload of shows from 2006 to 2013, pretty much anywhere they'd have us. And right, at, right around then, I moved to Santa Barbara, California. And, bef- and uh, we recorded an album right before then, and it sat on the shelf until last year uh, when we released it. Uh, I started post getting on Instagram, posting a lot of things about music, and a lot of people took notice of it. Of, mm-hmm what I was writing. So we put the album out and started getting interest in the band and offers to play and stuff when the pandemic was over. So, and I moved back to New York earlier this year and we started playing together. So we were on hiatus for like seven or eight years. Oh, wow. And now that the record is available, there seems to be interest in the music because back in the day, people, a lot of people would come out of curiosity because I was on the Sopranos and whatever. Mm, sure. and we didn't have any music out there. So they didn't know what to expect. And now, now, people are coming to the shows because uh, they've heard the music as well as just some people come because they've seen me on TV or whatever. All their hope was gone Until they found your grace In the skies of Omaha Light shone on their face Always waiting for some sign A display of might Always knew that someday, somewhere You would make the day from the night Till I find your grace And work like a charm Just recorded a new single with a really great producer named John and Yellow that'll come out in January. And we've been writing uh, a lot of new music. Um, we've we've just been playing a bunch of shows in, in New York, New Jersey, and we're going to Seattle this week for a couple of shows. And then uh, back to Brooklyn and hopefully going to do some touring uh, next year and be back in the studio next year. But um, I'm, uh, it's been really wonderful, get, you know, playing again and, and the, and the, Audiences have been really a lot of young people coming mm. out, like in their twenties and thirties, which is really nice. Um, you know, it's indie rock. You know, New York indie rock. And people are listening, so that's cool. Talk a little bit about what what is next for you beyond uh, talking Sopranos and beyond Kerouac. What else is on the horizon for for uh, for you, Michael? The two main things is is uh, Zopa is the band, which I'm very excited about what we're doing right now, and uh, I'm writing a pilot 
for HBO. I have a deal with HBO, uh, and I'm working with Alec Berg, who's a showrunner on Barry and yep. wrote for Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. And we're writing a pilot together, half-hour dark comedy, where I play a version of myself. It's kind of, it's navigating like post-soprano celebrity with Buddhism and spiritual pursuits, but it's it's a kind of a Chaplin-esque, Buster Keaton-esque type of dark comedy. This, I mean, dark, like dark night of the soul type of stuff. That sounds fantastic. We look forward to that and, uh, you know, hopefully get Zopa up to Boston. You know, you might've heard it's a bit of a college town, so there may be an audience for you up here. Great music scene. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we spoke about that book, Astral Weeks, right? Last time. Yeah, we were yeah, around. we did, yeah. Now, most people don't know, you think of the Velvet Underground as one of the quintessential New York bands actually played more shows in Boston than they did in New York. Yeah, yeah. So Boston has a rich rock and roll rich history. Rock yeah, and roll history. De- You're definitely, damn right. definitely does. And uh, and you know, like I said, hope you get up here soon, Michael. Last question I have is going back to Sopranos. Obviously, is you know the ultimate question that all the fans grapple with every day. What are your thoughts in terms of what happened to Tony in that final episode? Oh, I always thought he was dead, and. We have one more podcast episode to record and then we're wrapping it up and it's the finale. The last episode, we're going to have David Chase on as a guest. If you watch those last nine episodes, which we call season seven, the season six was divided into two parts. I call it season seven, the last nine. Tony has become a very dark, very demonic monster almost, Mm. including the murder of Christopher, the way he's dealing with Hesh. He's just got this cold, totally self-serving thing that's taken over him. And I think it makes sense that he would get it in the end. And that go to that cut to black is Tony Soprano's point of view going to black. That's my opinion. It's a uh, something that's been debated as, as almost aggressively as the Warren Commission in the Zapruder film. Uh, everybody has an opinion on it, but I think, you know, you are peeling back the layers on Talking Sopranos with some people that have that have come on and given their perspective as well and shifting gears a little bit toward uh, The Many Saints of Newark, which is, uh, you know, now available on HBO Max. It was in right. theaters. Um, you know, I saw it uh, in the theater and the first you know, voice I heard in the film was yours. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, I know they were looking for some way to connect the series to the movie. And I believe they even filmed something with Edie and maybe something with someone else on camera with them, like almost talking about the old days and flashing back. And I guess they wanted to do something a little more abstract. That was a cool way to do it. You know, I mean, it's about Christopher Moltisante's father is the central character of the movie. So, I thought it was a really cool way to open and close it and have that connective tissue. And and for me, it was fun trying to figure out where is this guy at now? I mean, if he's in hell, what does that mean? Is he older? Is he wiser? Is he more bitter? Is he, you know, so it was kind of fun to uh, try to wrap my head around where this guy was at because I hadn't played him in, you know, 15 years. You know, it seems like there's a now a, a new kind of satellite universe um, that The Sopranos has generated. You know, much of it goes back to 
to your podcast. I know David chases and talks with HBO about other different soprano stories that are, that are worth telling. So this is, um, it's interesting. It's almost like star Wars a little bit that, you know, you have all of these different stories that are, you know, might be unfolding in the future. And, uh, you know, you were there at the very beginning and are a huge part of that and a part of the foundation to, as we said, going into this uh, show, you know, the greatest, TV program that's ever been on television. So kudos to you, Michael. Thanks for spending well beyond the time that we suggested when we got on um, this interview uh, this morning. But uh, really appreciate you coming on Saints and Sinners and can't wait to see what the uh, three of us do in the future with Kerouac. Me too. Very excited. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Michael. Have a good day. Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. Produced and edited by Mike Joshua. For more from the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. And for the latest on their podcasts and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, visit fortpointmedia.com. <laughs>